Disrupting Japan, Episode 60. Welcome to Disrupting Japan, straight talk from the CEOs breaking into Japan. I'm Tim Romero, and thanks for listening. If you read the news, you know that fintech is one of the hottest startup sectors right now. And if you've got a long memory, you'll also know that fintech is always one of the hottest startup sectors. Yet, Fintech companies seem to be strangely local. Very few succeed outside of their home markets. A complex web of regulations and local market sensibilities almost always ensures their failure. PayPal wanted to make sure that did not happen to them in Japan. And today, Jonathan Epstein explains how he brought PayPal into Japan. He explains not only how he got the Japanese regulators to sign off on PayPal, but how he and his team had to throw out the U.S. playbook and build a new retail and online market from scratch in Japan. Jonathan also explains how the exacting demands of Japanese consumers forced him and PayPal to make a decision that dramatically increased costs in the short run, but saved the business in the long run. But Jonathan tells that story much better than I can. So let's get right to the interview. If you're a startup thinking about Japan, you'll never really understand the opportunities here until you start to take a serious look at what's happening outside of Tokyo. Osaka, in particular, deserves your attention. And this is especially true if you and your team are involved in smart cities technologies. Now, Hankyu's GVH5 project is Osaka's Startup Central, and it's a great place for you to get started. They offer co working space, bilingual business support, venture investment, and they're at the center of a great international startup and mentor community. Now, Hankyu's GVH5 in Osaka really deserves your attention, so pay them a visit at www.gvh5.comen. You'll be glad you did. So, I'm sitting here with Jonathan Epstein, who led PayPal's market entry into Japan. And you've done a lot since then, but today we're going to talk about PayPal and how, how all that came together. So, thanks for sitting down with us. Thanks for having me. Delighted. Well, let's, let's get right into it. So, when PayPal was looking at the Japanese market, what was headquarters' main motivation for coming into Japan? What did they see here? So, PayPal has, has actually been in Japan for several years. And what they wanted to do was to expand the,、uh, their presence dramatically. Basically, they, the entire focus of their, of, of their mission in Japan has been just on their you know, existing internet based business.、Mm -hmm. uh, and that's been driven by a lot of you know, natural just people signing up for PayPal because. They want to buy something in,、uh, at a shop that, that offers PayPal. They learn about it. Originally, it's been driven a lot by foreigners、um, right, who came、right. to Japan.、Um, and then it's, it took off、uh, in Japan and re reached a certain sort of critical mass and has, not, has grown, has continued to grow、um, and actually grew、um, quite well、uh, while I was at PayPal here, but not at the, to the size. Or to the, to the rate of, of some of the other. Okay, well,、uh, but let's just, like, when headquarters was deciding to put, put a little extra muscle behind this, when they were deciding to really focus on Japan,、um, in any multi sided market, you know, the challenge is you need customers on both sides. And in the US, eBay 
was really the original killer app for PayPal. Mm-hmm. But eBay never really took off here in Japan. Right. So what was the Japan strategy to get these initial users? So eBay did not take off here. And, and really the reason is because Yahoo Japan um, expanded so quickly uh, as soon as it found the idea of right. what eBay could do. As a result, PayPal knew that it, that it couldn't rely on, on Yahoo Japan to achieve that same growth. Um, and looked for other ways of doing it. And has had, PayPal has had a tough time in, in a lot of regions uh, developing beyond that original uh, eBay franchise connection. Right. That's a great, it's a great uh, sort of demand pull sure. for, for a service like PayPal. So what was, what was the, the key strategy to do that? Was the timing such that you thought eBay was going to be successful in Japan, or did you know that that ship had kind of sailed no, it was pretty clear that ship had sailed yeah. and, and sunk. <laughs> okay. um, um, but, but at the same time, there were, there were a number of, of different initiatives. Okay. First of all, what's called the, the natural growth, um, which tended to be very unpredictable. That uh, did very well. And there were also technology-driven enhancements uh, to the tools that, that uh, we could offer um, merchants mm. um, that really didn't exist in the market in Japan. The existence of those and, and the continual offering of those uh, new products like one-click checkout and, and some of the latest best practices that teach retailers how to improve their flow-through and, and decrease the uh, number of people who drop off, that has done extremely well. Okay. The other piece of that um, was, the, uh, was the PayPal Here uh, device, which was basically um, a, a similar device to uh, to the Square uh, checkout device. That's right. It was a retail solution, right? That's right. So they could do uh, retail sales, and so um, as just as I was uh, joining the organization, there was a the thought was to to launch that in Japan. How did that do? It didn't do well. Oh, uh, it. Um, it launched to, to great fanfare, but as it turned out, uh, Rakuten beat us to the punch. Oh, okay. And, and also turned out that Rakuten had um, enormous sales resources that PayPal just didn't have, unfortunately. Right. I think Japan must be one of the most competitive markets in the world for electronic payments. Even when you're talking about on-site uh, JR, uh, Japan Railways has their own on-site solution, the Suica. Uh, Rakuten's got into the game, so it's an incredibly tough market. It is. It, it's, uh, it is incredibly tough. That's the right word. Um, and very fragmented. Uh, and so that makes it very difficult for, um, for a solution provider or even for uh, an individual merchant to decide what he should accept right. and what the best solution is. And so price uh, inevitably is, is one of the most important criteria. But, they, but price is only seen as... Um, the, the full the whole added in price is, is not something that people tend to to look at right right it's the first thing everyone asks about though right <laughs> of course but I guess even though even an on-site solution you've got the same uh, multi-sided market problem you have online where you need enough people with PayPal wallets who will spend it at the the supported stores and you need enough stores to support the device that that People will actually think to use to use it. Well, actually, with uh, with a PayPal here or Square type device, you can use any credit card. 
okay. it will accept any, absolutely any credit I card. I see, I see. Right, okay, so you, just, you can just uh, stick it into the back of your phone and then swipe it. All you need is the software. It's, it's uh, $20 and then a registration process to, uh, to get going. That makes sense. So why you? Why did they select you to, to lead the company at this point? Well, I, I think, um, you know, you should ask them that. <laughs> but, I'm sure it didn't come as a complete surprise. I, mean. <laughs> um, I, I had come out of, out of a heavily quantitative insurance background and had launched a very large, uh, unique uh, insurance product, this uh, cell phone insurance. It's not the same market, but there, is very, there are fairly few people, at least who I can point a finger at, who have sort of the, the combination of, of Japanese language ability plus uh, strong enough English skills and familiarity with how things work in the valley to be able to bridge that difference and, and sort of give some direction to, uh, to, a, to a mixed uh, team here. Okay. Well, as well as, I mean, introducing any new kind of financial product or financial service in Japan is, is shall we say, non-trivial. Mm. Yeah, to say the least. So... Was PayPal up against some regulatory hurdles as well? So uh, the regulatory situation was, was complicated and fascinating. Oh, and okay. um, frankly, I've learned a lot throughout the process. PayPal is in many ways more than just a product. It's a, it's a toolkit, a variety of different services uh, that you can offer to consumers and to businesses to operate their financial, you know, to, to help with transactions. Uh, it cut across uh, l- legislation in almost every country that it works in. And so depending on the regulatory structure of the country, that would be either a great thing for PayPal or a very difficult thing for PayPal. So in Japan, I mean, who who so, who, who has some kind of regulatory th- authority over PayPal? So in Japan, it was the FSA. Right. And the word is, and, and I have no uh, idea whether this is, is exactly true or not, um, but that the FSA actually designed uh, this piece of legislation, the um, money transfer uh, license, for PayPal. In other words, not for it particularly, but in, as a result of the types of questions that PayPal was asking. Okay, so they designed this legislation before you went through the process or after? The, so the legislation was designed. Uh-huh. Um, it had been rolled out with several other companies, oh, okay. but in, in very specific and limited ways, generally for funds transfer organizations like um, Western Union. Oh, Western Union, okay. So like, like a Western Union, right? What were the services that kind of put you under the jurisdiction of different, different agencies? So money transfers, one, the uh, degree of, of uh, information that we collected from individual consumers. Uh. Um, the, the fact that we held credit card and, and processed credit card data. And then the fact that we uh, took the risk of individual merchants not paying. So as, a, as, a, as you said, it's a dual-sided market, and so right. it, it takes the risk on both sides. And so each of those different risk ca- characteristics and tools basically falls under a different set of laws. Okay. So for example, um, and, and foreign exchange. Foreign exchange is actually falls under a different ministry altogether. And were you connecting? Were you connecting to users' bank accounts in Japan like you do in the states? Yet another no. Answer. No, okay. we, we, there was it was something that we pursued. It wasn't something that we 
did at the time, no. Okay. Let's dig into this for a minute. So the, the process of getting this approval, was that something that you could do in parallel with all the different agencies? Or was it something you had to do kind of sequentially, one so after the other? It, as it turned out, it was clear that we had to get one in order to get our basic set of capabilities working. So mm. the, the, the function was, was rather interesting. We had an ongoing business, but the FSA effectively said, you register by this date or you must stop everything. How much time did they give you? I don't recall. I think it was at least a year. Oh, okay. So there was ample time. Okay. The enforcement of Japanese regulations is sort of, um, it's a bit of a, a mystery. Mm. So it sounds like you had relatively friendly regulators who were saying, look, you're not complying now. You've got a year to comply. And was it fairly clear what you needed to do? Or was it a case of where you had to just kind of keep going back and saying, is this right yet? So first, let me answer the first question. <laughs> the, from, from my perspective, yes, it was a fairly reasonable process and, um, and, and very sort of rational to work with. Okay. Um, we did have to go back uh, several times to adjust different aspects of the offering, but that's because it's a very complicated offering. And a big part of the challenge is explaining the complication, transferring that from, you know, across, you know, a, a language barrier, but then also into charts and in a way that the bureaucrats are familiar with seeing. Okay. It's a cost. It's an it's an incremental difficulty that foreign firms face, um, but it's certainly one that's that's superable given the right team. One of the most common complaints I hear from companies who have either just come into Japan or are thinking about coming into Japan is the lack of transparency in regulations. And from your experience, it sounds like it was relatively straightforward. So look. Uh, the process was straightforward. It was opaque as to when we would actually receive the license and when we would be okay to apply. And it was very clear that whereas in a U.S. situation, there's a very clear sort of adversarial relationship, mm -hmm. but fair. But, you know, each, each side knows what he is able to do. In Japan, that's really, it's different. Um, and the the uh, the regulator is the is the parent. <laughs> That's actually the a, a great analogy in several ways. It, it it almost is. They almost see it as a paternalistic relationship. Exactly, and and they want. I mean, frankly, they want to make sure that when you're submitting a business plan, that it's a business that can work. So, do you think? I'm going to ask you to kind of speculate here. But do, do you think the Complaints about lack of transparency are largely due to the fact that these companies aren't yet in Japan? Is it, would you have been able to get the information about these products and about this company if you did not have an operating concern in Japan and we're not talking about concrete products? There have been, there's been a lot of ink spilled on, uh, <laughs> on the topic of why, why this you know, perception exists or why the problem exists. You know, and it probably depends on the personalities of the people involved to, okay. to a large degree. Um, but I think that when people go into a new jurisdiction expecting things to work exactly like they did back home, they run into a lot of trouble. Hmm. 
Um, and so business plans have to include, you know, a fair amount of, you know, flexibility to, uh, to take into account that, that extra time. But, you know, Japan is a massive market. Um, the regulators have been at this game for a long time. They are very successful and very smart. They're the, you know, the creme de la creme of Japanese society. They are not perfect by any degree. Right. Well, actually, that's a really good point. I think a lot of, I think it surprises a lot of people from overseas is that when you're dealing with the Japanese bureaucrats, a lot of these people are people who graduated from the top universities. Mm -hmm. You know, it, it is a very respected position in society. Mm -hmm. On a personal level, of course, like every case is going to be different. Mm -hmm. But what's the best advice you could give a new country manager or a new regional manager who's thinking of coming into Japan with financial products? What, what's the best way of thinking about the regulatory hurdles that they're going to have to face? First, know your own product and what you're offering inside and out, right? So know yourself. It's, it's sort of uh, Sun Tzu, right? <laughs> know yourself, know the enemy. Um, if you know both, you, you'll win a thousand wars. Um, if you know exactly you know, what product you have and what the advantages are, um, that's the first step. Then you have to figure out which of those advantages are actually um, can be reflected into the Japanese market. Uh, that's not an easy task. It takes time. You have to meet with a lot of people, effectively sell them the product without having the product right there um, to find out whether it's going to work, and then figure out who else is doing that same thing today. Right, in Japan? Because in Japan, oh. because there's definitely a competitor here. It's a huge market, again, very competitive. There's definitely somebody who's fulfilling perhaps not that exact financial niche, but something related or something that the Japanese consumer or, or whoever you're targeting uses to fill that niche. All right. right? And so then understand the dynamics of, of those competitors and what they have to offer and what their uh, histories are like and how deep their pockets are and everything else. Um, and how how much they control the customers, uh, and then go into the go into understanding what the regulatory framework looks okay. like. Now, did did they make requests that you change the product in any way? The regulators, I mean. So, um, yes. Okay. Yes. So, I mean, they've got to, anyone coming in has got to be flexible on on that matter as well. Yeah, request isn't exactly the right word. <laughs> um, it's, it's a, this is in, this is not. Okay. Right, and so, you know, sometimes it came as a surprise. Um, and in that case, you know, you've got to sort of figure out how you're going to, to respond to that. Okay. Let's go back to a second to the, the entry and the initial positioning. PayPal, when they came in, it was, the organization was structured as a wholly owned subsidiary? Yes. Right. It was not a yes. JV. Was your go-to-market mainly based on uh, like outbound sales or partnership sales or inbound marketing? What, what was your basic go-to-market here in Japan? Yeah. So there are, there are basically three phases to it. Um, large company sales, mm -hmm. um, small to medium co company sales, and then going after individuals and people who wanted to sign up as, you know, as, as users. The large company sales were direct sales. We had a dedicated, uh, very talented uh, direct sales force. 
the small company sales, did some direct sales, but was by nature of the size of the market and the profitability of each customer was more reactive. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the individual, um, the individual side was more just uh, marketing and sort of, you know, manning the phone, you know, the phones. Okay. So was the how different was the Japan? strategy from headquarters was it was it kind of running the u.s playbook or were you almost starting from scratch in a new market uh, actually neither okay. <laughs> because because the u.s um the u.s is playing with a, a very large ebay that pulls customers into paypal right or that used to anyway i'm not sure how it works now but it wasn't at the same time starting from scratch because there were similar markets in other parts of the world where there were no, there was no, you know, large eBay presence, and so the the, oh, okay. the countries had to sort of fend for themselves. And so when we had, you know, regional meetings, it was very clear that we had a lot of the same issues and challenges. Okay. So what sort of things were were different in Japan than in the U.S.? Well. Size of budget for one. Well, <laughs> well, that's fair enough. Um, but in terms of like the basic strategy, uh, look, the major piece is uh, communication, hmm. um, outreach to to Japanese uh, consumers um, who didn't have a lot of experience with PayPal. Uh, the key difference there, funnily enough, is that in the U.S., one of the major attractions of PayPal is fear of credit card fraud. Hmm. Okay. Right? Because with PayPal, you enter, you register your credit card information once, and then you use, then you just refer to using their password over and over again, and it's perfectly safe. But in Japan, credit card fraud, while not non-existent, is extremely low. Hmm. Uh, and so, one of the very basic uh, attractions is sort of missing. Okay. And then, whereas the in the U.S., so, so the structure of the market is really quite different. As well, the the individual retailers um, aggregated their payments to a to a payment service provider, which is a, a provider that that provides lots of different payment methods to um, to individual retailers. The same structure roughly exists in the U.S., but the role of the payment service provider of the PSP in Japan is much richer. The individual merchant doesn't do a lot of the, um, of the sort of blocking and tackling, in terms of, of the payment process. So the payment service provider would provide a. Th- these are our offerings. You know, choose whichever ones you want to support, and the merchants themselves would not be as proactive in Japan, saying, "Well, we want to we want to use PayPal or we exactly. want to use this service." Okay. Exactly. And so that made it more important to work with the individual. PSPs with the individual payment right, service providers, right. and to convince them of the value. But at the same time, you've got to sell down to the merchants who can be they can be twenty, thirty, forty, fifty thousand merchants under a single payment service provider in order to convince the payment service provider that they have to offer uh, PayPal. So that's that's a, a different sort of by layer sale um, that that we would have to. Uh, What's well, actually quite similar to. The channel partners models in a lot of software market entries, where you know you've got to convince the the systems integrators who have tremendous client capture, and you've got to drum up demi- demand among the clients. And exactly, all right. I think it's exactly the same dynamic. Um, and interpreting that 
the, the various layers of middlemen and working through them efficiently uh, and convincing them that, that you are worth retaining um, is, is a major challenge, perhaps the major challenge. Okay. Yeah, and especially in Japan where there are so many options right mm-hmm. now. Exactly. So you had, that was a fundamental change in the basic go-to-market strategy. Were there any changes you had to make to the product as well in Japan? So the product is, is almost infinitely customizable. Hmm. So the answer, the simple answer is yes. Uh, in terms of, of limits and um, you know, sort of how much collateral to with, withhold and, and that sort of thing, those, those are constantly um, adjustable areas, okay. right? And so those effectively are the, the product. The but core technology itself, though, the core elements of the product don't, don't change. That okay, so it was more customization for the market. It wasn't something you, you had to go back to headquarters and say, we need this new development, we need these new features in the next release to support Japan. It was customization of existing parameters. That's what it was. It was never even really an option to do anything else. Okay. For an organization that's operating in, you know, 100-something com- countries... Okay, Japan is a large market, but you know, but the voice of, of Silicon Valley is, is louder. Yeah, the communication with headquarters and mm-hmm. the you know what you said about the voice of Silicon Valley being mm-hmm. so much louder. How did you make sure that headquarters was paying enough attention to Japan's need? Because this is probably something that is like one of the top three concerns of every country manager in Japan. So, so I was uh, blessed or cursed, I'm not sure which, with, with the opposite problem. It's, it's oh. one of the two, right? You're either, um, you either have too much attention or not <laughs> enough, right? All right. Um, in my case, in, in, when I was at PayPal, there was a surfeit of, of attention on the Japan business, particularly because with the launch of PayPal here, there was only, it was only launched in a couple of different countries. Uh, okay, so it launched very early. Mm-hmm. It was a very, it was a major focal point of the relationship. Okay, excellent. Well, that's actually a good problem to have. <laughs> Looking back on it now, sort of knowing everything you know now, what was the biggest mistake you made? What What would you do differently if you had a chance to go back and do it again? I, I think that that if I had yelled a little bit louder about uh, Japan's needs. Like what kind of what and kind of things? Partly the number of, of things that we needed to get done at once. Mm-hmm. Um, partly, one thing. I mean, this was a success, uh, but one of the things that we had a an sales um, for a call center in uh, China uh, with Japanese speaking Chinese uh, receptionists. Oh, okay. It was not well received by the Japanese by Japanese customers. We got a lot of complaints um, and made a lot of noise about it. So that's, this is something, I mean, outsourcing technology to China is extremely common. Mm-hmm. Outsourcing call centers has been tried a few times. So the motivation, I assume, was cost savings. Yes. How did it roll out? So it had been in operation um, when, when I got there, and we did shut it down and moved it to Japan. But um, a, a call center operation is, is a complicated thing. Yeah. Right. Well, and, and Japanese consumers are so incredibly demanding in terms of support. Yes. And this call center had been set up with, you know, significant investment and had found, you know, the appropriate Japanese speaking talent and quite frankly their Japanese was excellent. Oh. But 
it wasn't good enough. Whenever there's, and inevitably with a call center, there's an operator who doesn't know, you know, some detail of a product, particularly when it's a financial product and a service uh, like PayPal when people are expecting money. Right. And then when people detect an accent difference, um, as well as a, uh, a knowledge, a lack of knowledge, then it, it exacerbates the situation oh, dramatically. Okay. And so it was very unfortunate for the team in, uh, in China, um, but at the same time, very necessary uh, for the whole business and for the Japanese customers, of course. Interesting. It sounds like it wasn't any lack of ability. It was just that, that one little kind of trigger that would push someone over the edge and kind of le- complain about you on social media or what was, what was happening, just increased frustration of the users? or Yeah, in- increased frustration. And, and look, the Japanese authorities um, are very sensitive to consumer feedback, mm. um, far more than, than their counterparts in the U.S. And so, you know, a large number of complaints or even, you know, even a few complaints, actually, um, will trigger an inquiry. Oh, okay. Uh, and so it became a very... Um, okay. Did it actually trigger an inquiry, or was that just something you wanted to be proactive and shut it down before it could? It didn't. No, no, it didn't. Oh. But it was clear that um, it wasn't a tenable situation, mm-hmm. and it wasn't a solution to the market need. How long did it run? Oh, I don't know. Years. Oh, okay. Oh, right. so it wasn't a short-term no, thing? No, no, oh, no, all right. No, no. No, you don't get you don't get a you don't get a call center of that quality overnight. I mean, it really it really took a long time. Okay. Well, that is a shame. Everything so it was it was great in everything except for that native fluency. Then. Well, look. I mean, it's a matter of matching you know your customers' needs to the to the you know and and if what they're demanding is you know fluency and and native um, intonation. You can't really argue with that. No, but it, it's a natural, but I think what a lot of American companies would view as an extreme reaction. Um, I don't know how many companies I've talked to who have decided that they can just run support out of the U.S. where they have you know, two people at headquarters who speak Japanese and they'll handle support. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, so the reality on the ground is not only is that a ridiculous assumption, but you need to go all the way. You need a proper native support for any type of consumer-facing product. That would certainly be my recommendation. (laughs) (laughs) I I wouldn't play around with that one. Okay, yeah. So if that was looking back on on a mistake that you made, was there the opposite of that? Was there any decision you made either by strategy or just by dumb luck that really help move things forward? Not, I suppose, yes. <laughs> um, but in terms, mostly in terms of uh, structuring the sales team um, and, and going out on numerous uh, sales calls with, uh, with, with each sort of unit of the, uh, of the sales group as well as listening in on, on calls, on customer calls. Just getting as close to the customer, and these are pretty basic things, but okay. just getting as close to the customer is... is uh, critical to what was uh, sales quotas and compensation structured the same way in Japan as it was at headquarters um, you know actually I'm not sure I, I don't know what it okay. was at head, headquarters but I have to assume that it was pretty different um, sales quotas tend to be you know far more aggressive in the US uh, they're probably I believe that they were moderated for Japan mm. but not as flat as 
what you would expect for most Japanese corporations. Yeah, it's a lot of the traditional Japanese corporations still don't even use commission. Right. Which is crazy to the mind of most, well, most of the rest of the world, quite frankly. Right. Looking at more sort of personal and, and kind of soft issues, you had the advantage of having a really close relationship with headquarters for the Japan launch because mm-hmm. it was so strategically yep. important. Even within that, were there times where there was uh, misunderstandings between the Japan team and the U.S. team? And how did you get over that? Look, uh, there are plenty of, plenty of misunderstandings uh, in terms of failure to listen. Generally, it would take the form of one side or another believing that he had a more perfect view of the, of the needs of the situation than the other and, and failing to understand what the customer or what the sort of facts on the ground were really like. How do you bridge that? You know, by bringing the, the words of the customer and the facts straight to um, the decision maker um, and trying to make it as real as possible and to speak as, you know, as humbly but you know, sort of realistically Okay. as possible about the situation. But at the same time, you have to recognize that there are cases in which it's just not possible to, uh, you know, one's powers of, of persuasion fail or, <laughs> you know, or somebody else's mind is set or whatever it is. To me, that that is the hardest and in many cases the most important part of the job mm-hmm. is that inevitably you're going to be between headquarters who say, look, we've got a model that works, it's mm-hmm. proven, and on the other side, you're going to have a, maybe a Japanese sales leader or a marketing lead who's like, no, it's, they don't understand Japan. Mm-hmm. I need to do that. And kind of the default seems to be a lack of trust on, on day zero. Um, so you mentioned like actually bringing customer feedback mm-hmm. to headquarters, which sounds like a really powerful way of... of building trust in the organization were there were there any other ways you kind of help build that trust so look i I think the one of the best ways is to bring multiple not to be the only provider of information Mm. right and so i don't want to be the only person from japan saying either this is you've got to do this or you can't do this right i would rather have it coming from everybody on my team and if 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 uh, headquarters perceives that as weakness on my part, fine, uh, so be it. But at least let's get to the right conclusion. Okay, so so having the marketing people in Japan connecting directly with marketing and headquarters and sales connecting, I guess somewhat unofficially, both officially in every and every every possible way. Okay, right. You know, both sides have to suffer through the language barrier. <laughs> And the lack of understanding and the difficulty of reaching common ground, the more that, that happens, the better. Because the more that happens, the better the understanding is of how nuanced and difficult um, the cross-border communication is. Hmm. Maybe it's uh, the sadist in me who wants to <laughs> inflict pain on both sides, but um, I think it's... Um, well, no, I mean, it makes sense. There are people who are more likely to trust people they know and have spent time with. Right. Um, was there a lot of travel? So people, like senior people from Japan, going to San Francisco and vice versa. So in this case, the the main point was Singapore. Um, so oh, okay. it's closer, and there's more understanding of, of the local situation. But it was both Singapore and San Francisco, 
uh, and so the answer is yes, there's a fair bit of, of transfer, but you know, inevitably, um, a trip would be a couple of days, right? Or you know, three days, in which one is going to be spent, you know, eating out and and being you know shuffled around from one thing. Oh, you know, look at the look at the shrines. Look at, you know, this sure. look at how people drive on the other side of the road. You know, that kind of thing. It has limits. It's important, but but the impact has limits. And you know, I I like to leverage technology as much as possible. I would love to have people on you know regular conference calls. Um, you know, video conference calls. Mm. Everybody can do it from his desk. There's no, you know, you can get to see the person in his own work environment and understand more about their their okay. you know daily life. So I think that works. Conference calls are wonderful, but there are some things I found that only get done when you're sort of sitting across the table with someone. Absolutely. And, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, if, if there's no there's no magic bullet. Yeah. Before we wrap up. I want to ask you what what would be the most important piece of advice you could give to a country manager about just being in that being in that position, having that responsibility. I think that it's it's one of the most basic fundamentals of, of management, but it's just listening very carefully, listening both to employees uh, and to customers, and finding out what they really want. Uh, sort of behind what they're saying, and then also listening to um, to managers, and then if you have peers in in other countries, listening to those peers as well, to find out what works and what what they need to get to get things done. Let me push you on that a little bit because mm-hmm. in Japan it can be rather difficult to listen. A lot mm-hmm. of times subordinates will not tell you exactly what they're thinking. A lot of times it's it's hard to get honest feedback. Mm-hmm. So. How do you get that out of the people you're working with? How do you get them to really tell you what they think and give you valuable, honest feedback? That's but look, that's the that's the trick. That's why you get the the medium bucks. Right? <laughs> so one of the ways is by outweighting, outweighting them. You ask a question. You go in one on one, and ask a question, and let the uncomfortable silence just sort of flow for a while. Mm. Um, and if you're not getting an answer, you know, gently prod with different questions. Um, take people out to, to lunch and dinner. And again, I, I don't think there's a, there's a magic bullet, but I do think I've seen the wrong way to do it, which is to come in and, you know, bang fists on tables and tell people what they think. In a very frustrating role, that's sort of a natural response. Well, it sounds like you need to let your staff know that they have permission to give you that feedback. Well, that's absolutely right. Absolutely. And, and for me, it means admitting that you're wrong, mm. right? And saying, you know, every once in a while, or on, on, in my case, on a daily basis, oh, I really screwed up that one. I should have done this. But that's powerful in Japan. I mean, if... If the boss is willing to admit he's made a mistake, he's going to forgive subordinates for making mistakes. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah, I think that, that has a really big impact. Yeah, I think it's very important. Is there anything you want to talk about or that I haven't asked you that I really should have asked you? One of the things is just the, the market opportunities and the market direction. There is a tremendous amount of, of negativity in the press. There's frustration at, of, at the... Uh, 
the Bank of Japan sure. and the government for their inability to, you know, to see straight or to, to put together a, a relevant policy. Yeah, every day we're seeing like negative macro stories about Japan, either yeah. flat growth or the growth of the debt or something, right? Yeah, and, and uh, there's you know, real reason to be concerned. Yeah. Well, don't it, let me... It's true, but... Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to you know, sort of gloss that over. But at the same time, there are a number of skills and strengths that exist in the Japanese market and, the Japanese, and that working with Japanese consumers forces you as a businessman to do. Um, and to realize, which are world-beating. And this, this discipline of listening to customers and, and responding rapidly um, is something that is, um, is special to this place. Well, that's true. I, yeah, if your customer support and your customer satisfaction is high in Japan, you're, you're pretty much covered anywhere in the world in that regard. Mm-hmm. And, and even to the financial world, which in many ways is, is you know, decades behind mm. the U.S., um, certainly in terms of IT infrastructure. Um, even, even in that area, um, it's possible to see how many really interesting opportunities there are um, for, yes, for disintermediation, but also for creating something new and valuable that's different than, yeah. than we see in, in parts of the U.S. It is amazing to me as well and that so many people ignore Japan, and I have no idea why. I mean, maybe it's you know China seems to get all the the Asia attention these days. It, it's it goes in waves. Yeah, but in terms of market opportunity, it's still the third largest economy on the planet. Right. And regulation is it has to be gone through, but it's nowhere near what it was like twenty years ago. And it's rational. Yeah. It's actually thought through. Yeah. And from your experience, it sounds like it's, it's collaborative and a relatively friendly process. Yep. That's, that's how I would characterize it. Excellent. Okay, Jonathan, thanks so much for sitting down with me. That's Thank great. you. Thank you. And we're back. I thought it was interesting that perhaps the biggest challenge PayPal faced entering the Japanese market was not something that was in the market but something that was missing from it. eBay. Yahoo Auctions got to market first in Japan, and eBay never managed to catch up, or to gain any traction at all here, really. In the U.S., eBay was the main driver for early user adoption of PayPal. So without eBay here in Japan, PayPal had to throw out the U.S. blueprint and build a market from scratch. Different partners, different users, different landscape. It's often hard for successful startups to start thinking like a startup again. But a lot of times, that's what you need if you want to build your business here in Japan. I also think that Jonathan's experience working with the Japanese regulators is something all foreign companies can learn from, particularly those involved in a highly regulated industry like fintech. The process may be lengthy and somewhat opaque, but it's not adversarial. I really like Jonathan's observation that the regulators seemed almost paternalistic in their attitudes towards the companies they regulate. PayPal may not have achieved the level of success in Japan that they have in America, but the story of their market entry contains invaluable lessons for any company 
trying to break into Japan in a highly regulated industry. If you've got questions about PayPal's market entry or want to share some thoughts on fintech in Japan, Jonathan and I would love to hear from you. So come by disruptingjapan.com slash show 060 and let's talk about it. And when you drop by, you'll find all the links and sites that Jonathan and I talked about and much, much more in the resources section of the post. And I know it's been on the back of your mind for a while now, but if you get the chance, please leave us an honest review on iTunes. It's really the best way you can support the show and help us get the word out. And most of all, thanks for listening. And thank you for letting people interested in Japanese startups and innovation know about the show. I'm Tim Romero, and thanks for listening to Disrupting Japan.